Good morning. Welcome to Bible study this morning. A special welcome to those here in person with us in the gym, those listening on KFUO in the St. Louis area, and those listening worldwide on KFUO.org. Uh, we have a great section of First John, especially for Life Sunday. Uh, today, if you're at 8 o'clock, you know this, and if you uh, visited our table over there, but we celebrate Life Sunday, that all life is precious and to be honored, um, both at the start and at the end of our earthly lives. And certainly we rejoice in the eternal life that God gives to us in his son. Uh, but before we begin Bible study, let's begin with a word of prayer. Dear Lord, I pray that uh, as your children, we come before you in earnest love and sincere uh, thanksgiving for the grace and mercy that you have shown to us in your son, Jesus Christ. I pray that you would continue to guide us and bless us, keep us and keep uh, all that we love uh, safe and dear to us. I pray, Lord, that you would continue to allow us to value life, especially that gift uh, of life at the start, at conception, and at the end of life, that we know in all things you work for those who love you. And we pray all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So we pick up uh, in First John, as we've done the last two weeks, and we're at First John chapter 2, starting at verse 18. And like I said, this is a great section of John for something like Life Sunday, because it starts with the words children. <laughs> now, uh, he is not just addressing children here. And I, we covered this when we talked about uh, John two weeks ago, Pastor Thomas, I know mentioned it, but it's a great reminder because it sets that relationship up between us and God, that we are his children. And he's going to, uh, John is going to mention this a little bit uh, later on in the start of John 3. And I, I'm thinking that we're going to get through uh, John 3, uh, 3 today. That's kind of my goal. But your sheet, if you, I do have handouts, I should say, on the back uh, bleachers by the Bibles, if anyone is interested. Uh, I put a little bit more on that handout just in case we, we get a little further than that. But children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that, uh, as you have heard, that Antichrist is coming. So now, Many antichrists, plural, antichrists, have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. Now, when you think of the word hour, what connection, uh, perhaps to the Gospels, do you think of when you're thinking of an hour? It is not my hour. And then, in the garden, it is the time. Yeah. But this specifically is talking about then the last hour. I and truly the last hour lasts longer than 60 minutes. Here, John is talking very directly about that time prior to Christ's second coming. We still today in 2022 live in the last hour. We live in that time, that Advent time. That's why we have an Advent season where we look forward to that second coming of Christ. Yes, in Advent, we look forward to the coming of Christ and his incarnation and his birth, but in Advent, we also look to that second coming. And we acknowledge that we ourselves are still in that last hour. And you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. One of the things that John does very directly here in John 2 is define what he means when he talks about Antichrist, plural, coming. And quite literally, Antichrist is just that. Antichristos in Greek, in opposition, opposite, or in place of Christ. So when we think of that word Antichrist, John is using it here to say that truly anything that is in opposition to an adversary of, or in place of Christ, is an anti-Christ. And specifically, in terms of this letter, I uh, remember a few uh, weeks ago, two weeks ago, why did I say that uh, John wrote First John? All right, we'll review. <laughs> False teaching. Thank you, Ruth. Had me worried there. Yeah. I'm used to that in confirmation class, but you know. Uh, yeah, because of false teachings that there were those who were leading the children of God 
those who had heard the gospel, the gospel that John had seen, had touched with his hands, had heard with his mouth, confessed with his lips. They were those who were taking the children of God that John knew had the truth and leading them astray from that truth. Serving, acting as adversaries, as anti-Christ to the truth of the Christ, that Jesus is the Christ uh, and truly that the Christ, the one you've been waiting for, that's Jesus and him alone. And so now many antichrists have come, therefore we know it is the last hour. And they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might became, become plain that they, are, they all are not of us. So there's two sort of us's here. Uh, the first is us in terms of being the children, being the children of God, but also there's the us of those connected to that apostolic teaching. There's the us of the uh, John was not alone in his proclamation of this gospel, that he and the fellow disciples went out and made disciples of all nations. And so what does John immediately identify here as what those antichrists were doing was separating themselves, quite literally cutting themselves off from that body of believers. And they had at one point been in the church. Now, across the history of the church, there have been different times and in different places, um, those who have been uh, accused of being outside of the church. But here, John is going to make it very clear. What does he mean that they are not of us? Uh, but we have to wait about three verses for that. It's in verse 20. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. Unlike those who are the Antichrist, you have the knowledge. John is trying to remove any sort of ambiguity that is in the minds of the people in the church that somehow maybe we're wrong. Maybe we didn't get it right. Maybe, or maybe it could be a both and sort of thing. John is reminding them that they know the truth. They have knowledge. And I don't mean to keep harping on it, but if you go back to John 1, uh, 1 John, sorry, 1 John 1, 1, that got brought up. I need to make sure I say 1 John when I give the verses. Uh, that uh, I, I can at times forget that, there, well, not forget that there's the gospel, but that when I say John 1, 1, it's not 1 John 1, 1. Uh, 1 John 1, 1, and see where, again, John begins his, his whole letter, that that which was from the beginning, which we have seen, which we looked upon, touched the life that was made manifest, that we testify to and proclaim. That is the knowledge that the people of the church had. That is the knowledge that John is pointing them back to. Remember what you heard from me. Remember what you heard from us, the pure knowledge of the gospel. And I write to you, because, not because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie is of the truth. What's interesting about that is, is John's making uh, maybe perhaps a different argument than some, sometimes what we see in some of the epistles, where Paul perhaps writes uh, about those who have not heard, or writes to those who have maybe not heard the good news of the gospel, and writes from a very evangelistic perspective that I am to proclaim this good news to you. John is working from the other way around. I have proclaimed this good news to you. I have proclaimed Jesus to you. And so remember what I said to you. You know it. You know that there are no lies in it. Now, one of the things I think is really interesting here is that you can uh, see implicitly that there were those in the church that at some point, for some reason, with whatever this heresy was, remember I said there are many theories, but we don't know exactly what the specific um, issue was that was, was driving people away from the truth of the gospel. What's implicit here is that there was real doubt. There was real uncertainty. And of course, uh, we could all sit here and not and say, well, I've never had that sort of doubt, or I've never wondered about this or that. Or, um, 
But the reality is, I, I, at least for most of us, probably we have had perhaps times in our lives where we wonder, do I have it right? Do I truly trust that this is what God um, does for me? That this is who God says I am. This is who God says he is for me. And in uh, that sense, this letter is one of tremendous promise and of hope because it's a reminder to go back to those promises, the truth, the purity of the knowledge of the gospel uh, that many of us have had uh, from infancy. But perhaps even later in life, if we came to the church later in life, remember the pure teaching of what it means to know Jesus Christ or Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the son of God. So I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. Uh, now, it's interesting. I remember from my time at the seminary, there was a, a professor at the seminary, uh, one that you guys probably even know because he's a member here, Mark Seifred, who uh, had a really great point when looking at the Greek of this. And, and it, what I'm going to say, it doesn't change what he's saying at all but it maybe changes the focus and the emphasis. And that's what I actually think is maybe a better reading, which is to read it not as that Jesus is the Christ, but that the Christ is Jesus. Because if you think about it here, what is uh, John directly speaking against in this moment? In John, 1 John, I did it again. 1 John uh, chapter 2, who, to whom is he speaking directly against? What does he refer to them as? Antichrist. And there's a number of reasons in Greek that I am not fully qualified. Uh, Dr. Seifert would do a far better job explaining to you. But when you think about it, it makes sense that he would point them back to, you have seen and witnessed these antichrists, these adversaries, these who stood in opposition or in place of Christ. And I'm reminding you that the Christ is none other than Jesus. That the Christ is Jesus, this is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. John makes a really, really, I think, fascinating point here. Uh, It it is the direct connection between uh, God, our Heavenly Father, and God, his dear Son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus makes this uh, connection repeatedly in the Gospels. No one comes to the Father except through me. That if you want to believe something other than Jesus, you don't have the Father. You don't have God. You cannot proclaim to know God and yet deny that Jesus is the Christ, or as I said earlier, the Christ is Jesus. And here John lays it out in an incredibly simplistic and incredible depth. When you think about that, when you think about the people who he's writing to, many of whom have spent decades and decades in their faith, many of whom maybe even have psalms and even books of the prophets mostly memorized. And they're wondering, well, what is it? What is uh, the connection? What is the, the truth? And John just puts it, right out on the table. Know the Father. To know the Father means to know the Son. If you don't know the Son, you don't know the Father, even if you've got the whole Old Testament memorized. Even if you can quote me, you know, the Pentateuch and the prophets, you must know Jesus. And you must know who exactly Jesus is. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. I'm going to do it again. Look at 1 John 1. John repeatedly goes back to that first argument, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard. Let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us eternal life. 
what a wonderful reminder to the church of what we our focus is all about and what uh, that faith directly gives us. Let what we have heard from the beginning, the purity, the truth of the gospel remain or abide, remain steadfast in us. And if it remains steadfast in us, then you will abide in the Father and the Son. And again, it, it, it seems maybe oversimplistic and I'm repeating it, but there's so much depth to that understanding of when you know the gospel, you know God purely. When you know what he does for us in Jesus, you know who he is, what sort of God we worship. Um, you know what it means to not only know of him, but have him abide in you. Have him come into your life and have him give to us his promises. This is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it is taught you, abide in him. Kind of an ironic verse to read in a Bible study where someone is teaching you, right? To read the words, you have no need that anyone should teach you. And what's he doing up there? <laughs> no. What do you think John is talking about when he says you have no need that any, anyone should teach you? Is he saying that you don't need teachers? <laughs> no. Yes, that's exactly right. So the comment was made, they don't need to listen to those who are trying to deny what they had been taught, perhaps even trying to add on to what they had been taught. John's reminding them, you know what you need to know. You have what you need to have. And you don't need to worry that you maybe don't have it right. You have it in, it, in the purity, in the knowledge of that which was from the beginning in the knowledge of what I have proclaimed to you, what the faithful have proclaimed to you about who the Son is, about what those promises are, that what, about what God has done for us. You don't need that anyone should teach you a different thing, an additional thing. Um, it is not saying, don't come to Bible study. <laughs> I'm not just saying that for a self-serving purpose, but rather he's talking about a, the the idea of a, a teaching in addition to what he's already said. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, remain or abide in him. And now I think this is probably uh, such a great section for today, for Life Sunday, as I said earlier. Starting at 228, this was actually the very uh, first text I ever got to preach on in any set. Um, and you heard about that last week about the boy who wanted to know what I was doing up there because I wasn't a pastor when I was at the seminary. Um, but it was this text because this is actually uh, an epistle lesson for All Saints Day. And what a great reminder when we think of Life Sunday and the sanctity of life, um, the wonderful gift of life, that we also remember uh, the wonderful gift of eternal life that not only um, do we know in Jesus, but that all the saints who from their labors rest have known in Jesus. And now, little children abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Now, it's interesting. How did he refer to those he was writing to in the start of our Bible study today as children? But now what are they? Little children. Now, I don't want you to make too much of this. This is just kind of an, a, an advancing term of endearment, right? You know, uh, you say, uh, let a you know, children are wonderful. Little children are wonderful. It doesn't change who we're talking about. This isn't like this is a different group at all, but rather uh, you could say, even in English, it still sounds a little bit 
uh, more loving. Abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Now, what sort of uh, moment is he talking about there? Remember what I said the last hour pointed to? The second coming. And again, he contrasts, or not contrasts, but builds on what he said all the way back in the first few lines of his epistle. That if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. That we should, on the basis of our sin, have to shriek in shame at his coming. But of course, as we heard in the exhortation, as I'm sure you could probably quote to me, what comes directly after that in 1 John 1? We confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Most of us have said that probably a few thousand times, perhaps, <laughs> in our life. But it's an excellent reminder that though we should sh shrink in shame at his coming, we do not need to because he is merciful and just and will forgive our sins. That we may have confidence not shrink from him at, in his coming. Now, you think about that day, the second coming of Christ, seeing the full glory of the resurrected Son of God return. Who else had seen, or who in the Bible had seen the resurrected Lord appear to the, him after the ascension? Oh, Paul, no, after the ascension, it, yes, there's a third answer here. He was revealed to this person and it spoke a lot to that last hour. John, <laughs> the very man who wrote this, wrote the book of Revelation. And you want to see shrinking from shame at his coming or, or what we should uh, have to do. Go to Revelation. Go to the book of Revelation and go to Revelation 1, uh, let's see, 1, uh, verse 12. After he heard the voice from the Lord God that he is to write what he sees in a book and send it to the seven churches, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstand one that looked like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refi refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell down at his feet." as though dead. <laughs> if you think about it, John knows exactly what it's like to feel the need to shrink from shame, sh from his own shame, seeing the glory of a resurrected Lord. And yet, after that, he can write to the church that the great reminder that we need not shrink from shame at his coming. For what is Jesus' response to him when he falls down as though dead? Fear not. Fear not. What a, a great reminder that is, uh, and, and kind of probably an ironic line to write for John. <laughs> an ironic line because <laughs> who shrank and fell down as though dead, like a possum, absolutely paralyzed, uh, it, it's interesting, a, a possum, when they play dead, they don't do it voluntarily. It's actually just a natural instinct. Their bodies naturally do it. They can't control it. It's not like, oh, I want to play dead. But rather, when they sense fear or when they, they uh, have a moment of, of fear or trepidation, their body produces an enzyme naturally that completely paralyzes the possum. And I always think of that when I think of what John did in Revelation 1, and then thinking about what he says here in 1 John uh, chapter 2, that it's not as if John thought, hmm, it'd be a good idea for me to now fall down as though dead. 
but that he has no other option. Involuntarily, when confronted with the glory of the resurrected Lord as a sinner, we have no other natural reaction than to fall down as though dead. And yet, when we abide in him, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. What a great comfort that verse is. What a great comfort that is, that it's not, uh, and I hope, uh, you know, uh, that we are called children of God, and let's hope he's right. The finality, the, the simplicity of just, and you are. God says you're his child, and you are. And he's going to talk about what you will be in just a moment, but do you notice that status, that right, that adoption as a child of God is not a future tense thing. It is a present tense. That is who we are now. That is who we are today. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Uh, kind of an interesting thing there. When you think about it, John's talking about how, how those who uh, deny the son, deny the father, do not know God. And he's also implying that when the world does not know God, it doesn't know the children of God. Now, did the world know the physical person of the children of, of a child of God? Yes. If you go, um, you know, around your neighborhood, do people know who you are? Yes. But do they know really who you are? Well, I would say it's the whole you. They don't know who God has declared you to be unless they know who God's son is. Unless they know that there is nothing that can compare to knowing who he is. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. It's kind of an, again, going back to that revelation of John, it's kind of an interesting statement for John to make that we will be like him and we will see him for who he, or we shall see him as he is. Now, I want to be careful here because we, I'm not going to say that we definitively, what we read in, in Revelation 1 is the exact image that we're going to see, but I think it's probably pretty close. Uh, you know, God is God and he works in, in a wonderful ways, uh, but John's kind of implying here that just like I saw him in the true glory of his resurrection uh, in that revelation, we shall see him as he is, as he is seated at the right hand of the father. And we shall be like him. Now, I'm not going to stand here and say that means you know, you're going to have a two-edged sword flying out of your mouth. I don't know. God could perhaps make that happen. That is, uh, we don't, uh, but what is John trying to get at? That we will be like him. Holy perfect, blameless before the Lord. Now, are we wholly perfect, blameless now? No, on account of Christ. That's how God sees us, but only on account of Christ. We are still poor, miserable sinners, and yet we are God's children now. And you see this, this tension that exists. And Paul does a wonderful job in Romans, especially talking about 
about this tension, that we know the wonderful news of what it means to believe in Jesus, that we are given the full rights, adopted as sons, as children of our heavenly father, as children of God. Uh, and we should act as such. And yet our sinful self is still here. That the old Adam, so to speak, that we still daily uh, are in need of that forgiveness because we are still poor, miserable sinners. That every single one of us today will confess in church quite truthfully that most merciful God, we are by nature, by our very nature, sinful and unclean. And yet as God's children, you are holy and precious and blameless in his sight on account of his son. And I know uh, this is probably seems like, okay, that's, you know, we've been, but John, you see how he harps on this over and over and over. He starts with it in John 1, continues with it, and will keep continuing with it. That very, very truly, um, as God's children, we ought to act in a certain way. And yet, as sinners, we need him to be merciful, just, and forgive us our sins and cleanse us, cleanse us today. Funds us tomorrow from all unrighteousness. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Now that's kind of an interesting phrase, right? At the surface level, it's seemingly indicating that John is somehow saying, we need to go purify ourselves like we do the work. And what, of course, is the problem with that? Well, Jesus did, but it very quickly becomes works righteousness. Now, John is saying we ought to be pure, but everyone who thus hopes, what is that hope? In that true knowledge, in that which you have heard from the beginning, that which we have heard and seen, which our hands have touched, our eyes have seen, all who hope in Jesus, through Jesus, is purified as Jesus himself is pure. And everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness, for sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. So how many of us make a practice of sinning? Wow, we have not a lot of people willing to raise their hand? Yeah, yes, all of us, right? I mean, come on, if your pastor's raising your hand, you can raise your hand. Uh, what is he talking about here? Everyone who makes a practice of sinning, sin is lawlessness. You know, breaking the law, very true, but again, if we did the exercise again, how many of us break God's law? Yeah, all of us, yes. So what is he, ta what is he talking about? Okay, rejecting God, rejecting, rejecting Jesus. Yes. So we'll keep reading it. You're absolutely right, Ruth. That no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. But again, do you keep on sinning? Yes. So is this causing doubt to our promise? What, what is he talking about when he says keeps on sinning, practicing sin? Hmm? Willfully? I would say even uh, openly and unrepentantly. What was First John? I almost said John 1. First John 1, 7. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Exactly. That there's an implication that, you know, before you think um, someone is perfect, one of you men are perfect, we're all sinful, and yet we also shouldn't keep the practice of sin going. We shouldn't be, um, I guess you'd, you could almost say kind of uh, lukewarm about our sin. Eh, guess it's what I'll always do. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't sins that are, are extremely difficult. For us to not admit each one of us struggles paul himself right struggled with sin what's john saying here is that we shouldn't 
celebrate it. We shouldn't continue in it without being honest about our reflection, about confessing it, about confessing the sin that we commit on a daily basis. Because no one who abides in him, I would add to this, keeps on sinning openly, unrepentantly, happily. Now, are there sometimes sins we're happy to commit? Yes. But should we, when we confess our sins in church, do something like this? Yeah, yeah God, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry for all the sins, but you know, not really that one. No. It's a very honest and humble reflection that when we confess our sins, it's acknowledging that even those ones that sometimes I'm not so sorry I commit, even those sins I truly truly repent of. It, all right, bud. Yes, I, I believe it's in Thessalonians where uh, the devil is referred to as the man of lawlessness. Um, kind of licentiousness uh, is what he's getting at here, at least. Yeah. Yes. And actually, um, to have a licentious attitude to have a licentious attitude is in, in very true terms, um, presenting that as an antichrist in opposition to Christ, uh, in place of Christ. And that's why John is so, uh, adamant. So continually pointing them back to what they had heard from the beginning. What did you hear from the beginning? It was Christ and him crucified for you. That if you think you're perfect, you're not. But when you confess your sins, God is faithful and just and forgives you of those sins on account of who his son is, on, the count, on account of that the Christ is Jesus of Nazareth. Yes. I wouldn't say so much that as I would saying pridefully sinning, being proud of our sin. Um, because it doesn't matter if you're six weeks old or 96 years old, uh, as a poor miserable sinner, we continue to sin. None of us are perfect. And so he is not trying to cast doubts on, well, boy, I haven't been righteous enough lately. I'm not going in the right direction. Does God really love me? He's not saying that. What he is saying is if you are prideful, licentious, you know, having this open, unrepentant, happy-go-lucky approach to our sin, then we really need to examine ourselves. Because we're only deceiving ourselves. And you notice, uh, uh, let's see, earlier he talks about uh, if, uh, that what is the truth, what you have been taught, and it is no lie. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. We lie to ourselves and the truth is not in us. All right, hands up, or the stoop. When I have us all raise our hands. I, and that's where I was. So the comment was made, what would I mean by practice sin? I, maybe I'll rephrase who among us sins. Yes. Yes. And that's, and that's what John is pointing out that we don't do that, but correct. Yes. But all of us, I would say, okay, so away from the context of pra what practicing sin means here, just in our, uh, own English vernacular, who among us sins or participates in sins. No, I know. Yes. He's talking about those who are open and unrepentant in their sin. Yeah. All right. Any oh, I realize I haven't opened it up for questions. No. All right. Uh, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning and no one who keeps on sinning has either seen or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil had been sin the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Which is exactly where you're right, Sue, that in what John means by it is not what our English vernacular. If I were to say, uh, who of us practices good hygiene hopefully we'd all raise our hands right hopefully <laughs> uh, probably a little quicker than 
uh, we do participate in sin. We do actively sin. But you're right. It is not, should not, and ought not to be gleeful. That's another good way to put it. I used the word, you know, having a licentious attitude before, but having a gleefully sinning attitude, having an, an attitude of sin that even kind of rejoices or celebrates our sins. Um, that is what he is speaking out against. Uh, not saying if you keep on sinning this week, God is not in you. And that's where I think it's important to distinguish between uh, that open, unrepentant, that gleeful sin and saying, no one ought to sin this week or else God's not in you. That is not what John is saying. And that's why, again, in the start of the letter, he talked about, I'm not, if any one of you thinks you don't have sin, if any of you reads this and can come to the conclusion, well, I must not be sinful, you're reading it wrong. <laughs> um, but don't be unrepentant in that sin. Don't be open and unrepentant in that sin. And particularly, what's the context of the sin of first John? Sins of what type of individual? What was, what did we cover, right? An antichrist, someone in opposition to Christ. And not secretly, but openly. Not um, remorsefully, but gleefully acting, teaching, proclaiming, operating, practicing in a gospel that is in opposition in place of the good news of Jesus. Yes, Ruth. I would say, yeah, if any... If anyone denies that they sin, um, even John himself, right? That if any of us think we have no sin, but we, but the difference between we who are sinful and the people I'm speaking out against is that they are proclaiming a gospel that is outside in opposition to the truth that you've heard from the beginning. You don't need to be taught anything different. You have what you need to know. And so, um, you know, very truly, if we were to go out and, and say um, openly, repeatedly, unrepentantly that, uh, yeah, it's good to believe in Jesus, but you also have to root for the St. Louis Cardinals for God to love you. Now, some of you are like, well, that's not a bad idea. <laughs> uh, no, it'd be a very bad idea. And that's sort of what that kind of addition to um, that he's talking about. And again, we don't know. There's been lots of theories and lots of speculations, and we could speculate for days as to what the specific heresy or issue was. But it was clear that the heresy was adding to or removing some aspect of the truth that they had heard from the beginning. And the people doing it were not shy about it. The people doing it actually came from the congregation came from the church, came from the leaders, came from uh, people that perhaps were even trusted by the congregation. And so that's where you get this idea that um, <laughs> this sin that they're committing over and over and over is that they don't know, or they're at least not proclaiming openly so, to know who Jesus is. All right. Uh, so no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. By this it is evident uh, who, are who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So, what do you think it means in the context of a church with great great people or a number of people within it practicing sin, being that open, unrepentant, gleeful, licentious attitude to love your brother. What does it mean in a situation like that to love your brother? Okay. They're not going to love their brother. Okay. <laughs> yes. Bring it to the brother's attention so that the brother can change their ways. It is not, uh, let it go. And it is the reminder that we um, are called to not only practice righteousness uh, and show great love to our brother, 
but so too we are uh, called to in love call out our brother that we are called to um in love remind our brother of that truth we had heard from the beginning uh, true love is not saying oh i took the plank out of my own eye so i don't say anything True love, it's taking the plank out, remembering how great your sin is and how God has forgiven you. And in love, removing the speck or encouraging your brother to repent of the speck that is in his eye. It does not leave the speck there. Yeah. It can. Yeah, it was not an enviable position for that church to be in. Yeah, yeah. That's a difficult conversation. That's not one that you... <laughs> Yeah, the, the, the congregation to which John, John writes is in some ways in a, in a fantastic position in the fact that they have heard from John himself the truth that he has seen and heard, and they have heard it from the beginning. But they're in a very unenviable position in that you're exactly right, Steve. Uh, these conversations are not going to be easy, and the situation they find themselves in now is not an easy one. Uh, it's a tremendously difficult one. Yes. Yeah, yeah. If you talk to someone who's in agreement with you, it's a lot easier, right? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, um, I'll open it up for any questions, and then uh, we're just about at time for today. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and John's highlighting the, the reality of our kind of our now, not yet status in God's kingdom, that we are now children of God. God says you're his children, so you are. But what we will be, the full revelation of what we will be, uh, we have not yet seen. But we will see it, and we will see it because we will be as he is now. Yeah. No, that's a fantastic, fantastic point to bring out. Yeah. All right. Any other questions? Comments? Yes. Yeah. That's a great point. The point was made, you know. For John to have been the one to, to fall down as though dead, the disciple whom Jesus loved, the, uh, a man who saw his transfiguration, um, you know, but now in that moment in Revelation 1 has seen him in his full glory. All right. Well, we will pick up. Uh, Pastor Smith will be back next week. So he returns. Uh, well, he will pick up at First uh, John, John 3, verse 11. Let us pray. Dear Lord, I pray that you would allow us to take great comfort in knowing that we are your children now and knowing that it is uh, even on a day uh, like today, especially on a day like today, we are truly uh, grateful for that opportunity to know what it's like to be your child. I pray that you would allow us to, to keep this promise, uh, keep this adoption as heirs to eternal life as a, a, a comfort and a hope for us each and every day of our lives, that we would be kept uh, in the one true faith until that day when we uh, come into your near presence. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.